listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. filmmaking friends. My name is Paula Landry. I'm the CEO of Paula Landry Media. I'm a writer, producer, and entrepreneur working in the film industry. And what I'm known for are a couple of my books, The Business of Film and Scheduling and Budgeting Your Film, A Panic-Free Guide. And these books were written um, coming from my teaching and my filmmaking. And I I'm working on uh, speed adaptations right now from theater to screen, which I'm having a lot of fun with. And I'm very excited about a feature project that I was just able to attach some name talent to. And uh, that's moving forward, which is really exciting. And and I'm working on a new series of entrepreneurship tools for media makers, specifically filmmakers. Paula Landry. Welcome to the Make It Podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm, I'm excited to speak with you. Well, I am equally as excited. And to get the audience a little deeper into the world of Paula Landry, I'm going to read from your bio. And as I always say, this is the internet, so feel free to jump in after I'm done and correct a thing or two if a thing or two needs correcting. But I'll read from here. Paula Landry, MBA, is a producer, author, and media consultant crafting evocative films and impactful business and marketing plans for entrepreneurs, Fortune 500 companies, and nonprofits. Ms. Landry teaches entrepreneurship and media classes, consulting with media entrepreneurs and businesses seeking to raise money and grow their business. She has conducted film and television library valuations in association with GNH Media for the Truman Capote Estate. Cinema 7, and the Australian government. She is an instructor in media courses at SVA, NYU, Park School, uh, Park Film School at Ithaca College, Wagner College, and MCNY. Her eclectic career in media forms the foundation for a multimedia perspective to provide marketing solutions across a spectrum of media channels. She's also the author or co-author of the books Scheduling and Budgeting Your Film, A Panic-Free Guide, The Business of Film, which is a five-star Amazon pick here, A Practical Guide to Achieving Success in the Film Industry, and Sell Your Screenplay in 30 Days Using New Media, and what an impressive resume. What a delight to, to dig into all of this. So let's go back to the beginning how did you get your start in film? And was there a moment that stands out for you where you knew this is what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Uh, well, those are such great questions. And, and thank you for your kind words um, about my bio. It's, it's been a long, it's been a long haul and it's been a little zigzaggy, which I think happens with a lot of people. So fundamentally, I came from an arts background and I played the flute and I played the flute in, um, on film scores and, and TV scores and arranged a lot of concerts. And I could see 
the more filmmaking friends I had that kind of came through post-production, how similar um, the two sides of producing are, right? Planning a concert is allocation of resources and, and project management and all that. And um, as I worked with people in different um, capacities through production and post-production and people just seeing like, oh, you know, I like how she thinks. I like what she does. I wonder if she could help me with this. People just started to ask me to help them out with stuff um, on their projects. And I said yes and had a lot of fun. When I was living in California, I kind of got into cable television through my friends asking me to help them with this and and to look at budgets and schedules and help find ways to cut costs and, and plan things more effectively. And I realized at that point that, you know, creators um, are often producers that they they often go together. And I could see after I had helped a couple people make a series on Fit TV and then I was working for um the Odyssey channel that people would give me projects because I was a filmmaker and, Mm -hmm. and I discovered it a little bit by accident in a certain way, but then I was like, Oh, okay, I could do this too. (laughs) (laughs) So it was through the grace of my friends and, and um, wanting to be in a creative community. So that was part of it. And I think the energy around creative people will help um, will often help people find their role um, just through the exposure, you know, through the exposure and, and being game to try things. Was anyone in your family a creative? I mean, how did you get into flute? Were, 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 is, oh. are, are, do you come from a family of musicians? Yeah, my family is incredibly creative, but it's interesting. My parents were um, my parents were uh, entrepreneurs in the pasta industry, but my grandparents <laughs> were all musicians. Okay. And so my parents had this huge love of music and there was so much music in my house and pianos and things. And I only played the flute because we had the choice between everybody played the piano, but I had the choice between the flute and the clarinet. And I didn't like the way the clarinet smelled. So I was like, (laughs) oh, the the flute, it's got to be the flute, (laughs) which is super weird way to choose something. But, you know, just just love, love playing the flute and um you know, everything having to do with music and musicians. And it's really working in concert with other people, which is exactly what a good film set's like. It's exactly what a film project is, is when the different parts come together and the harmony is made and you just feel this kind of synchronicity that, you know, only can happen in a collaborative art form, um, like flute, like, you know, like music, like film. I might regret this, but what does the clarinet smell like? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't want to get graphic and eerie, and I don't want to offend reed players because they just rock. I mean, mm-hmm. clarinet players are just some of the they're awesome. So, okay, <laughs> the reed, you know, like so the reed is is this little piece of I don't know, it's kind of a little bit like wood mm-hmm. and it's it's damp a lot. So oh, imagine damp yeah. wood. You know, that's just really, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's an earthy smell. We'll just leave it like that and feel free to cut any of this out. Because yeah, and you have I to stick don't. that in your mouth over and over again. It's just not, yeah, yeah it's not. It, yeah. And I do think that the, I, I will say the other thing that drew me to the flute is it's a lot like singing mm-hmm. in a way that the clarinet is is not. So I, I will say that. Um, I love it. And thank you for going a little bit deeper with me on that and and helping out my curiosity there. Uh, How did you meet Stephen Greenwald? 
And and how did you guys decide to co-write a book together? You guys co-wrote uh, The Business of Film, a yeah. practical guide to achieving success in the film industry, which, as I mentioned, is currently sitting at five stars on Amazon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And and we're about to work on an update, really, because of everything that's just happened in this past year and a half. Um, so Steve was a mentor to me. He was a professor. I studied with him when I did my MBA. And, you know, the hallmark of Steve's classes was he had like six books. And then he just had all this great information. And I said, what you really need to do, Steve, is synthesize this, you know, into one book which is really your experience. And then you can draw from some of these other, um, some of these other books or point people towards different resources. And, and that's kind of where it started. And the two of us worked together, um, you know, for a couple of years on that. And Steve, Steve is such a, he's such a brilliant guy. In addition to being a, you know, filmmaker and financier, who's a, a lawyer. Um, so he has a, this kind of really, um, amazing way of of thinking through things and what i loved about working with steve is he taught me which which i hope comes through in the book and i believe does is that if you look at history and i'm not saying thousands of years of history but if you look at the history of the film industry you'll see these patterns and the patterns will tell you how to look forward so that you can start to see around corners and you can start to see trends coming um so steve was um in addition to being, you know, presidents of colleges and things like that, he was all those, also the financier for Dino De Laurentiis, who produced over like 700 movies or something insane. And Steve constructed financing deals, the, some of the most creative financing deals in the history of the movie industry. Um, so it, it was always exciting to work with him. And he was always able to put things in very plain language. And I think my you know, gift in putting together that, to putting together that book um, with Steve is, is to be able to take information into bite-sized pieces. So you could go to any part of the book and just read that part, or you could read it in, in the context of the chapter. So I think sometimes we need knowledge like that, right? We need it mm -hmm. in big chunks. We need it in little chunks. We need it in, you know, laser focus. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited to update it. Yeah, I, I'm excited too. You talked about the financing piece and it's one of the most important parts of whether or not mm -hmm. um, a project will will sort of get seen by serious investors as a sort of a green light project or, or too risky. And somehow we just keep repeating and I'm speaking specifically in in independent film, the world in which we live, we keep repeating the same pattern over and over again. And I think it's one of these things where a few people sort of get lucky or are, are able to find financing doing the, the wrong thing. And what, what do you mean and, by that? And so let me get into the, uh, yeah. get, get into it a little bit, because I think what happens on 90% or more, maybe more of the pitches that I get and that we get at Bonsai, the financial structure is along the lines of here's my pitch and my perspective and my lookbook or my perspectives and my lookbook. Here are my comps. Um, 
please give us X amount of dollars. You'll own this percent of the film and then we'll do the film and then uh, we'll get distribution and make all of our money back. Mm. And I find that to be the most risky type of financial structure that, that you could possibly have. And yet every filmmaker, either they're teaching this in film school or I don't know where it's coming from, but, um, or maybe it's like I said, you know, you're repeating traditional things without, you know, sort of looking at what's working today and why we're still copying each other and doing these things. Like, like where, where does this financial structure come from in your opinion, Paula? Like I, to me, the best structure is, is to sell a package in advance to a distributor or buyer and then, and then have them make it um, so that the, the project itself is in the black before you even start shooting. That to me, that's the way to do it. But it seems to happen the other way around where the filmmakers want to take on a, a ton of investor debt. Mm-hmm. And then as long as they get to make their film, it's like, okay, well, we made our film and too bad for these people that don't make their money back. Mm-hmm. Better luck next time. Yeah, it's a very, to take that sort of linear approach. And part of it, I think, is the way filmmaking is taught, right? It's taught in a linear fashion, right? And and I'll even say that, you know, a lot of books are organized that way um, because things do seem to happen in a certain way. But it, for me, the idea is that you look at distributors as your partners, right? What do they want? What are they looking for? Um, and you start with the end in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Because a distributor isn't interested in package um, or the attachments or, or whatever it is. It's not that you're wrong. It's not that you can't make that movie or even that you shouldn't, but they have this sense of marketability because they're out there doing it. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there needs to be this um, more of a relationship cultivation and more communication um, on behalf of the producers trying to get to know the distributors. What are they making? Why are they making it? Why did it work? Why was this film successful? And to really be a student of the um, industry in a way. And if you say, well, look, um, this film, you know, might have been bought because, you know, it was a foregone conclusion. It had a star, <laughs> you know, it did really well at Sundance. Okay. Like that, that lightning can strike. Right. But how about going to AFM, looking at the list of distributors who are there speaking with them? What are they looking for? What are the budget ranges? What are the attachments? Where, how do they finance films? You know, what is their ideal um, deal-making structure? And to your point, I think it comes from um, that we leave our creativity at the door when it comes to the deal. And the deal can be can be creative. The deal, the deal is the deal is everything too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not even everything, but bring your sense of creativity and fun and you know, bring all that into the distribution piece and start start with the end in mind, right? Because the end in mind is also is always the most amount of people see this project that should be seeing it. The most amount of people, mm-hmm. you know, get to find this and experience this film. Well, how is that going to happen? And I do think starting with that, um, it, it's a good, it's kind of a good tack to take. And it makes you think more with your marketing, you know, marketability brain uh, yep. at the outset. 
I love it. And just for the audience that don't know, AFM is the American film market. It happens uh, every year in the fall. And uh, it's where everyone comes together and uh, figures out which movies they're going to buy and purchase and distribute. And it's a great point because I don't know if a lot of independent filmmakers put enough value on it, uh, enough value of even on maybe going to find, maybe you can't get like a super established affordable sales rep, but you could find a young, hungry one that wants to make a name for him or herself. And that might be a way to go as an independent filmmaker as well. That's right. And if you can't go to AFM or you don't go to AFM or whatever, okay, that's fine. But there are, you know, there are hundreds of distribution companies. There are hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And it's our job as producers and filmmakers to get to know them and to get to know what kind of films they're putting out and and finding the right um, the right ones for us. Of course, we've all heard of the very largest ones, um, but a lot of us might do better um, to start with uh, something that's more niche or a company that can give you more hands-on support. And, and a lot of those, what I find in, in speaking with um, distribution companies, um, a lot of those companies, even sales agents, they're they're excited to work with you on the ground level. You know, they're they're often excited to be a part of the process as opposed to like, well, here's a film, it's done. Can you sell it? You know, yes. it's a very different approach. Exactly. And so just to be clear on, on what I was saying about financial structure earlier, Paula, is I find that a lot of independent filmmakers spend all their time in pre-production looking for money when my advice to them would be to spend your time looking for attachments, looking for better story, like making sure the story is a, is a A plus, make sure your attachments are there, getting a great casting director, making sure, you know, so it's this idea of instead of chasing money for a project that's half baked, make your project incredible. And then if it's incredible as a package deal, then you can go to a bank and get a loan. You know, you, you don't have to go to an angel investor and have them sort of risk uh, their their dollars as some sort of diversification play. You know, if you have a great package deal, you can go overseas and get money through pre-sales mm-hmm. or tax mm-hmm. loops mm-hmm. Um, or all just a number of, cre- like you mentioned, creative ways to finance. But the whole leverage is how good is your package? It is. And, you know, building the package often does require feedback. I mean, you, you made the point of a casting director and having that person as a partner and the right person, you know, early on can make a huge can make a huge difference. Yep. Um, it also um, will force you to think more creatively and to look in a way, you know, that you're not able to because they just have different eyeballs than us. Right. That's their job. So they're able to see kind of who's coming up or different attributes. Um, so that's that's the other thing that's interesting about this industry is that, you know, you don't have to do everything, but you do have to work with people who are good at kind of that role of what they're doing and let them help you. So ask them for, (laughs) ask them for help and take it because as it starts to gain momentum, and that's the big part of it, like you were saying, is make it a film that gains momentum because it becomes a magnet. The people involved, the casting, the attachments, a lot of people want to get involved. You know, that that's really ideally where you want to go. 
Exactly. Exactly. I love that. Uh, you have, speaking of all these things you are speaking about, <laughs> you have built quite a diverse portfolio in this industry. And I mean, we talked about it in the bio, producer, author, professor, media and marketing consultant, entrepreneur, all these different things. So my question to you is, of all these assets you bring to the table in the creative process of filmmaking, which do you think is your greatest strength? Or, or, or maybe what do you see as the most valuable asset you have to offer to the creative process of filmmaking? <laughs> I will say that my uh, most creative asset is that I am a, an idea blizzard. That's my production company. <laughs> and I can generate a ton of ideas when it comes to, you know, strategic thinking. So if there's a problem or there's an issue, you know, you have to have a bunch of crappy ideas to come up with a good idea. So some of it is to like, just drop your shame, drop your, we can't do it. Like the brainstorming process is designed to give you a thousand ideas that won't work so that you find that one idea that will. And I'm able to do that. Um, I think that's one of my superpowers. I have many superpowers. I think I inspire people. I think I'm a great leader. I think I'm able to communicate um, complex ideas into doable chunks. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's an example. Um, I'm working on the board of the New York City Women Filmmakers nonprofit, which is all about diversity. It's designed to, you know, help women make their films, help underrepresented filmmakers make their films and, and give them the tools. And um, I've been working with them for a little bit over a year now. And we're just about to launch a membership, which, you know, is the basis of what I think, you know, new filmmakers need, which is uh, networking, um, education, skills building, um, access, all those kinds of things. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I think what I brought to the table was like, you know, look 10 years, look 10 years into the future and see it being global, see it being on the moon, seeing every filmmaker being able to make their film. And I think that was surprising. Like, oh, OK, like, really that big? Yeah, it's not <laughs> just New York City. It's not just women. It's it's all of this. And, and you know, I'm not taking away from the group. They've done amazing things. They've been around for five years and Sydney Hugh is the founder and, and she started this incredible group with a great team of people. Um, but I think I was able to just shine a light on possibilities that maybe hadn't occurred. And I think that's important is you need, you need a kind of chemistry within a group where the strengths complement each other. And so, um, I like, I like looking at the moonshots. Yeah, we have that in common for sure. I'd, I'd much rather... <laughs> take a hundred moonshots and, and hit one, then, then try to base hit my way. And we also have another thing in common. I'm on the board of the Nashville women in film and television. And so we, oh, awesome. so we both uh, work in that capacity. You did mention New York city, which I thought was interesting, uh, interesting part of your background. So you live and work primarily in New York city. You have done some work in DC before uh, between 2006 and 2009, but how important is New York City to your work? And, and could you do the same thing in L.A.? Uh, what would you have to adapt if you were to operate on the West Coast instead of New York as well? Yeah, I, I lived in L.A. for two years. And I think, 
you know, I think it's great to work in many different places because you get, you know, you can get different things there. Uh, LA's great. The West Coast is fantastic. And I love the work that I did out there. It was really wonderful. It was an energy thing for me. I've always loved the energy of New York City. And I've lived in many different cities and then kept coming back to New York City. There's something about um, the mash of music and thinking and art and people and um, ideas and diversity that they're, they're in a way they're all on top of each other. Okay. That could be a problem Mm -hmm. during this past year, but creatively, um, that's something that you can just walk outside. You can breathe it in and, and you'll get inspired. You'll get inspired one way or another. So that, that's something that I think is fantastic. And, and also a lot of people come in and out of the city. So you have the ability, you know, I have clients that, you know, I was working with in Israel, but they came to New York. So we got to meet face to face. And otherwise I wouldn't necessarily have been able to do that. It's right. just a place that a lot of people pass through or they go to. And, you know, so it's a privilege in that way um, to just be able to run into and 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 meet creatives that, um, you know, face to face that I might not otherwise. I, I'm not you know, ruling out the possibility of working again on the West Coast. If the the job is right or the project's right, I'll go wherever I have to go. Um, But it's a good base, you know. How is screenwriting in VR or virtual reality different than normal screenwriting? Ooh, so VR is this like kind of promised land. We'll see whether it lives up to it or not. You know, um, to me, VR is the first step between movies and gaming, right? As you go into something, you're part of something, it's immersive. So um, because of that, you have, when you're screenwriting for VR, you have to think um, in a way that doesn't overwhelm people. You have to be cognizant of where a person's physicality is, right? We can't be looking all around us all the time, even though we have that ability. Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, it's very musical, like a musical composition has a rhythm. If you think about um, a symphony orchestra and it's one point the trombones might play and another point the bass drum might play and your your ears will move their focus to different sounds. You can do that um, with your storytelling in VR. So you begin to think in things like events, right? How are we helping, um, how are we helping the audience move to the event um, or give them choices to, in the storyline that will take them in a different way to, to the event. So I, I find it really exciting um, and challenging. Um, but I also think it's important um, when you're getting into VR and writing for it, like, just watch a ton of VR stuff mm-hmm. because without that visceral experience, it it's a little bit academic. Um, and, and there's more and more really good, um, you know, really good quality out there. And, and I, I'm not sure this is going to go mainstream, frankly, I, I'm not sure at this point, but I do, I do think we're not going to go backwards. I do think it's going to, you know, be around. I just don't know if we're going to be watching, you know, a two hour VR film in the theater. I'm not sure. Right. It's interesting because when VR first came onto the scene, I remember getting pitched five, six, seven projects all in VR. Oh yeah. And then when we said no, or those things didn't happen, it just went away and it went away. Like it, it hasn't come back. No one's pitched me anything in VR in probably four or five years. 
which is is interesting. I guess we're making space for augmented reality before VR can can take its place. But I have watched some VR films and I've always been impressed and it's always been great. Um, before we jump to the next, though, is there anything from a formatting standpoint as a writer you should look for when you're writing for VR instead of for screen? I think, use, yeah, I think using panels before you even take to... Um, it, it, it's almost like constructing a graphic novel and you don't have to be a great uh, artist or anything, but I think you have to understand the spatial relationship. So part of that means being able to put your writing in a way that is visual for you, where you can see where things will happen. How do you draw attention? So I, I, I think of it as a storyboard. I think that um, you should construct a storyboard that was going to help you put things in a sequence that makes sense. Mm. Um, and, and, and that can be a very simple tool. You know, there's a bunch of them out there. Um, but I do think whatever you do, if you take somebody else's kind of panels or you construct something yourself, it's going to help. It's going to help you think about it. I think that's great. That's great feedback. So almost like, um, instead of taking it to the postcard and doing an outline, maybe you do an outline with pictures and and let that be the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Because that'll inform, they'll inform each other. And VR, like you said, will it hit? Will it not hit? We don't know. One thing that definitely has hit that is a uh, something we just could not see coming in the way that it came is is non-fungible tokens or NFTs. <laughs> They're taking over the world. So I know you like to, as you mentioned, see around the corner. What do you think about selling an entire film as an NFT on a great. smart contract that gets royalties. I think it's great. I think it's great. I think the new currencies are great. I think anything, you know, the whole promise of blockchain technology and and things of that nature is that, you know, we have this record of um, payment. We have a record mm-hmm. of payment. It can't be fudged. It's it's supposed to be transparent. You know, whether it is or not, I think remains to be seen because I think there's. Um, there's some insiders and there's, some, you know, everybody else is kind of outsiders. <laughs> but um, I think the promise of the technology, if it's developed correctly, that creators are paid for their work um, is an exciting one. I think there's been a lot of money lost in the industry over the years to things like um, not just piracy or, you know, infringement of copyrights, but just that the creators maybe didn't know that their work was being sold and they had no way to know it. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea that we might be moving into a more transparent, um, you know, non-changeable accounting of where, you know, intellectual property goes and and who's seen it and 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 can can kind of um, put that next to revenue, I think, is is very exciting. Um, This put getting the systems in place, who those will benefit, you know, those are always kind of the wild cards. And that's something I hadn't even thought of, Paula. It's such a great point, right? Because for the feature films we've done, we do a monthly sweep of YouTube to find out who has hijacked our movie this month <laughs> and is is playing it on their channel and getting subscribers and we're not being yeah. paid for it. And invariably, like every month, there's someone who is pirating one of our films and to YouTube's credit, they are awesome about like as soon as you say, hey, these guys are pirating my film. 
they immediately shut it down. Nice. I, I cannot believe how fast they respond to that, considering the amount of video that's being uploaded uploaded per day onto their site. So, so kudos to YouTube for that. But you blew my mind with this idea of of having a digital tracking of everywhere your film goes. It seems so obvious that that would disrupt the current process of, of what I just described of me having to go sweep YouTube manually myself yeah. to find out who's not just for movies, but for music and, and, and everything. And yes, uh, we're looking into this. And right now the, the gray area Paula is who has the right, who, you know, if you're licensing it, does the licensor have the right and do they want to do it? Do you have the right because you own it, even though you're licensing it? And there's this little dance going on. And I think somebody's just going to have to jump in and, and try to get sued or not sued and see what happens. But and then we can work yeah. it out. But this is the changing sort of world of of media and ownership and, and how it can all work. Well, and what what you said, I think, is is, you know, in a perfect world. Right. The creators um, can track everywhere it goes. They have complete control. And I think if we really broke it down, there is no middle person. Right. Mm -hmm. In the yep. end. I mean, that's 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 sort of like uh, the moonshot. Right. Right. In that's what the blockchain is designed to do. Right. Right. But it, on a practical level. Right. There's going to be people who are experts in the blockchain. They're going to be experts in building the platforms. They're gonna, so they're going to end up being in the middle, whether we like it or not, whether it comes from <laughs> Google, YouTube or whether it comes from, you know, great point, uh, whoever. And so, you know, they'll they'll have a lot more power in some ways than the creatives because all the creatives are going to want it so then you're going to look at something like think about you know apple's video game platform and if they decide not to have roblox on it well you know good luck for the people who want to buy roblox right? right so those plat the distribution platform has an enormous amount of power and so ideally the creators form their own product platform right and it's created in a way that's meant to empower the creators now i'm not sure you know how i think it's possible i'm not sure how that would happen but then ideally every creator knows at every point where their film's going who's watching it whether it's being monetized or not and and sometimes maybe you know maybe the artist doesn't even care about the monetization if they want to know who's watching it what do they like about it? Like, is there is there a community there that they can get involved with? I mean, obviously, monet monetization is a huge part of the goal because mm -hmm. artists long have not had security and making money in their work. And they need that so bad to be empowered to keep making art. That's so that's a part yep. of it. Yeah, that's a part of it. But the other thing is, is the data footprint. Where is it going? Who's enjoying it? Why? You know, like. And that's what we have. If we have not only blockchain and a way to to track it, but we have we have a way to look at the data and analyze that data, um, which is what we need. And that's what the big players have, right? That's what YouTube has and, and Facebook has. They they and Netflix have. They have algorithms and they have this these data analytics that are so powerful. And they share a little bit with us, right? They they share a little bit with us mm -hmm. um, or they help us. Right. You say, hey, you know, Google, can you please take this thing off YouTube for me or whatever? And so that's great. But ideally, the platform is where creators can see and monitor that themselves and learn from it and market themselves better from it and grow because and make better art that's more marketable and finds their tribe. And, you know, it's kind of the self-empowering um, ecosystem 
and that's that's what I get excited about. Because to me, that's part of the entrepreneurship piece. And I'm always excited about entrepreneurship when it comes to artists. Likewise, and that could not be better said. And I, the, once you understand it, sort of the connection between the chain and, and ETH, uh, Ethereum, you know, and the applications that can be built on it. Once you understand it, you realize it will eventually eat everything. Um, <laughs> uh, e yeah. e even, even some traditional processes we have where yes. people will take money from an investor or from fans on Kickstarter or Seed and Spark, and they'll put it in an escrow account. Well, what is an escrow account for? It's about trust. It's about, <laughs> it's about telling those people, hey, we're not going to spend your money on a new car. Like it's just going towards this film. Well, an app on Ethereum could do that in a heartbeat. And you could put that money into a, a hardware wallet where the value of the money goes up. So it's upside for the filmmaker <laughs> and the investor because they might have gotten 50,000 USD, but by the time they shoot, it's worth 250,000 USD. And so it's, you know, these are the things that can happen and take place. But you talked about the tool of YouTube as, as sort of, or be are YouTube being used as a tool for marketing? That's exactly the case. Where as filmmakers, we are using YouTube to run our trailers, to talk about our projects, to get it out there. Uh, even um, if we have a short film that's a concept, we use YouTube. But I don't see it being used to its full potential as a distribution point in and of itself. So, talk to us why or why we shouldn't use YouTube as a distribution point or, or why it shouldn't be or should be? I, I don't think it's a should or shouldn't be. I think that, um, you know, it, a thing is not, I, I don't know how to say this gracefully, but um, sometimes the roots of a platform um, discourage a certain type of consumption. Mm -hmm. So YouTube which kind of grew up as the DIY thing for a lot of people does not feel like a place to go and watch feature films. Mm. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's an ecosystem that has a certain energy about it. Um, Vimeo was kind of created with a different, um, a different feeling sometimes feels more like a place to, to purchase films to watch features. And so I think the very nature of YouTube itself feels like everything should be free, mm -hmm. <laughs> feels like content can be any kind of content. And so it's very casual in some ways. And in a way that's too bad because it's so ginormous. It, it makes sense for it to become the movie theater of tomorrow, you know, to just be the multiplex. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm just not sure that that's going to happen. I'm just not sure that that's going to happen. Um, and I, I don't know if that means that there should be new platforms, because part of the problem with each new platform is that things are getting splintered, right? It's just like when broadcast television gave way to cable, suddenly you have to find your audience in like so many more places. Well, now with the internet, okay, the audiences are just everywhere. How do you wrangle them? How do you reach them? How do you find them? Exactly. Um, I do think there could be, let's call it a, a label, right? Like a, oh, you know how the the studios have their little private indie film labels inside them? Right. Disney with Miramax and, you know, focus features and things. I do think 
there's room in YouTube for almost like a private label of YouTube that is a division that's all about films. It's all about full-length films. It's all about maximizing the, f- the film-watching experience. Um, and it's going to have a different energy about it. It's going to have maybe a different doorway inside it. Like maybe it'll be part of YouTube, but it might not be called YouTube, which of course could easily be done um, to give you more of like, why do we go to the movies? It's it's this social experience. It feels kind of special, right? And YouTube, I'm not sure has that energy about it. So it's 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 almost like a it's almost marketing in a way, right? Yes. Yep. And and branding, branding and marketing. And branding, yes. And th- just the way that it's almost like they should have acquired Vimeo instead of starting their premium YouTube service. I don't think that's out of the question. And I don't think, I mean, they'll maybe acquire Brighteon and they'll maybe, I'm sure they're looking at all the video platform, you know, younger, more immature platforms out there because mm-hmm. that there's a lot of synchronicity um, with that. Um, but they could easily just be starting something on their own inside in-house, which would make perfect sense to me because you, 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 you nailed it. You, you hit it right on the head. Which marketing channel is most friendly to marketers and, and which is most friendly to, or, or maybe I should say most effective for filmmakers of all the channels out there, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, you name it. Right. Well, remember that Instagram is Facebook, right? Instagram is Facebook. And the really big problem with marketing to filmmakers right now is they're a central hub for the advertisers. That's kind of um, a problem for people buying digital ads. It's bifurcated all over the place. There's not this kind of central spot. So um, you have to really look at it goes back to your audience, right? Where's your audience? And you have to look at the psychographics of your audience and you have to look at the age of your audience. If you want an older audience, it's probably Facebook and YouTube. Um, You know, younger goes towards Instagram, goes towards TikTok. And some of it has to do with the content, right? And and kind of the vibe. Um, mm-hmm. Also, is it a film that's going to be available internationally? Then that that has to be a part of the thinking which platforms you go to. So there's not one size fits all, but I do I do think that the the you know the depth of the platform makes a huge difference. If you have a very narrow platform, or 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 you have a genre that is super super niche. It, then it's chicken and egg. Where are those people? You have to go there first, right? Yep. Yep. Have to build a camp there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which takes time. I mean, all of that is just like, we we think like, you know, in the old days, it was just like, oh, trailers and a poster. And, you know, it's so much more than that now. Oh, it is. It's and, so and, and complex. And, and producers will say, well, okay, we're done with the movie. Now let's go market it. And I said, oh gosh, we should have started oh, no. in pre-production. Oh no. And it starts with casting. And, and I'm not lying when I tell you that people now are cast by the size of their social followings. Mm-hmm. So if you're a young creative, no matter where you're at, no matter what crew role, if you're an actor, you got to cultivate it. You got to build it because like it or not, it's a part of the equation. I'm not sure that I agree with it, but it's not going away. That is. Well, huge yeah, step. absolutely. And one thing we look at is conversion too. Yeah. Right. Like, so I don't want you to have a million followers and over 50% of them be phantom followers, exactly. uh, ghost followers. You know, if, if you have a hundred thousand followers and you have a, you, you know, a 30% conversion rate on every one of your posts, 
That's incredible. I'll take that over the person with a million followers and, and a 1% conversion rate. Yes. So, um, cause that, that's just a following. It's real. It's organic. It's going to grow. It's going to keep building and building and building. Um, and, and, and I found just in terms of, of e- ease of use, Google and Facebook make it very easy to market and Snapchat is more difficult. I mean, it's kind of, for example, it's, it's, well, it's easy to create your ads on Snapchat, but it's very expensive. It is expensive and it's not as big and Google and Facebook have been around a lot of a longer time. So they have it, the technology. is just, um, it's more seamless. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I will say this for Snapchat, the engagement rate is just way, way up there. So if you, if you run <laughs> yeah, an ad on Snapchat, fun. people are going to actually see it because their platform forces you to see their ads. Yeah. And I do think they have a leg up in that. So if they can gain more mass, they could become a dominant player. I mean, we'll, we'll see. They're really, they're positioned um, from a business point of view. They're really positioned to be able to move, move forward because of that. That's the way I feel as well. Um, I read a little post of yours about when, about needing theater, a film needing theater to break out. And so it made me think about all the films, you know, Netflix has 35 Oscar noms this year, for example. Um, when a film breaks out on a streamer or SVOD, in your opinion, how does it differ than breaking out when it has a theatrical run? Um, the answer to that is that the theater, the theater is like the lottery. If you win in the movie theaters, you have what they called unlimited upside. Mm-hmm. So imagine, if you will, um, a tiny little movie that's in the movie theaters and it just happens to be a hit and it goes to more theaters and it goes to more theaters and it perpetuates overseas and it goes to more theaters and it's in the theaters longer. And then the amounts that are going to be paid in the ancillary markets are higher and higher and higher. So it's marketing for the film. A theater release is marketing for the film and the breakout is something that we can't know, right? We can't know because if it hits, it's going to be like taking money home in trash bags and, you know, my big fat Greek wedding and (laughs) paranormal and the Blair Witch. I mean, these are all, you know, you know, these are examples we've heard over and over again. So with a with streaming, there is not that unlimited upside because there it's always contractual, right? There's an amount that's going to be paid. And generally Netflix, if they're making something, there's not this kind of um, overflow into aftermarkets, right? And there's no surprises, mm. right? So Net- Netflix is already all over the world. It's great if you know, audiences all over the world take off. You think of like Casa de Papel or something like that. It was a Spanish series that suddenly the whole world, you know, just loved. And so maybe more subscribers will come to the platform because of it. Um, But it's not going to hit the lottery like a theater release. Right. And then overflow into more DVD sales and, you know, better pay cable deals and, and, and on and on and on and on and on. And, and, and that kind of, um, sort of su- surprise runaway hits there's no possibility for that inside the streaming ecosystem yes yeah, so that's a that's fascinating to me because you can have something like tiger king or, or the queen's gambit and everyone's talking about it and yep. they're watching it but it's so different than let's say what might go down in history as the very last theatrical breakout 
just because of the timing of the coronavirus. And we'll see what happens. I think people will go back to the theater, but we'll see what happens. But Get Out, for example, yes. might be seen as the Such last theatrical breakout where yep. this is a $5 million budget film. And if it doesn't go to theater, I don't think I don't think it's what it is today. And you make a really good point because it was a $5 million film. Then when it does hit the lottery, right, when it does mm-hmm hit this theatrical gold, the upside is just so unexpected and goes so far beyond partly because the film was a relatively inexpensive film to make, right? So there's not that same kind of math that occurs um, inside a streaming ecosystem, right? Exactly. Um, the budget is the budget and, and, and um, it's it, because it's all inside one company, if it more people see it, that doesn't necessarily translate into more profits, right? It sure. just happens to be that, oh, it was a hit. More people see it. They're talking about it. Like, oh, that's great. Um, but it doesn't, it's not cash in hand. Yeah. I I think it turned Jordan Peele into someone, you know, you, that we Super thought of sorry. as a, yeah, we, we thought of him <laughs> as a, as a skit guy on Key and Peele. And we still know him for that, but we don't think about him that way anymore. We think about him as a writer, director of these kind of unique, interesting, uh, you know, uh, far to the left sort of, um, meaning not, not politically left or right, but, but odd films. Um, and we, and we know he can deliver that. We know he can, deliver these kind of movies now because of the phenomenon that get out was and transcending race, transcending social, uh, commentary, transcending satire. I mean, just such an interesting voice. Oh man. What a just an amazing artist. I really, I'm always excited to hear what is coming from him next. I totally agree. He's a, he's a, he's a genius for sure. Speaking of genius things that have happened to uh, in the world of film, I'm wondering if you've run into any yourself. And so here's this question. <laughs> what are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career? And, and who did they come from? Oh, what a nice. That's such a nice question. Um, so the first probably, you know, the first one that I always come to and, and every class I have you know, teach graduate students. Um, it's been a while that I've been doing that. And, and, and I always share this with my class came from Stephen Greenwald and it was the Norman Herman story mm. and the Norman Herman story, um, was that when Steve was, I forget which company it was, he was helping them, um, trans, he was helping a film company transition, um, you know, in bankruptcy, they have to sell, basically, and, and, and close down the company and, and, you know, get disperse assets and all that thing to try to, um, you know, generate as much, um, uh, as much money as, as possible. And at some point in his, at some point in his career, um, you know, Steve, Steve helped this person, um, keep their job for a longer amount of time. And that, that was somebody that he used to work for, who Mm. was very kind to him at the beginning of his career when he was, you know, he says nobody, but you know, we've all had those meetings where we're just coming in with our hat in our hand and giving it a shot. And and this person was very kind to him and what goes around really came around 
which is the the reverse the roles were switched right and when the roles were switched he was able to um help this person um and 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 the the moral of the story is just that the person that you know you're working for you might be their boss someday like the creative industry has a lot of flow to it so just be kind just be kind and be considerate to everybody that you work with because at some point um you could be working for them you could need them they could need you you just never know how we're going to encounter each other um, along our creative journey and so it's really important to you know golden rule stuff treating people um treating people the way we should be treated. We'd like to be treated. You interact with so many different types of creatives because you're an author, you're working in film as producer, you're doing marketing and branding. And then on top of that, you're a professor. So you interact with students all the time. In your opinion, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? The two the two mistakes that I see people making um, are analysis paralysis. So I, I think people should act. They should move. They should try. They should iterate. They should fail quickly. Um, and, and, and then the other mistake I see is people not asking for help. So, you know, you had mentioned that you're um, on the board in the Nashville um, Women in Film and Television. Women in Film and Television. And I think finding a group of people and just saying, hey, I don't know anything about this or, hey, I think I know something about this. You know, can you can I talk to you about this? Can I ask you some questions like reaching out, asking people for help, telling them what you're doing, you know, telling them what you might need? That's a type of networking. I mean, we all want to help each other, but sometimes we do help each other when we ask for help. And that it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? Mm-hmm. When when you're vulnerable, you you let other people become vulnerable. And often that's by asking for help. And I think a lot of people are afraid. Um, nobody wants to look stupid. Nobody wants to look like they don't know what they're doing. Um, but everybody has things that they don't know about and they need to learn more about. And so I really encourage people to try to cultivate a community and (laughs) go ahead and stick your neck out and ask the question, ask the question, ask for help, like, or say, Hey, you know, I'd like to learn more about X, Y, Z. Like what, where, where would you look? What, what, what would you do? And, and that is really empowering to the community around you. And it can build, uh, it can build really beautiful connections. In the spirit of that, what if I was to give you or to say to you, Paula, you have one month to take a project from nothing to, let's say, visible and and maybe something from a marketing perspective. What would be the first three things you would do for that project? Let's say if it just came to you. And you've got to make it visible in one month. Um, can you give me more parameters? Is the is the project made? Is it not made? Yeah, finished finished uh, finished film. What would be the first three things you would do to help this film get an audience? Okay, so the first thing is, um, what are the genre and story? You know, what is the basic story? Because those are the buckets um, with which uh, viewers experience a film right so Mm -hmm. there's that and then 
you know, demographics are great, but it's really all about psychographics, right? So getting in the mind of the audiences, what are their beliefs? What are their, what are the touch points in the story that are going to resonate with somebody? And that could be character traits, that could be who's in it, that could be um, themes, um, sub-themes, and and to really find the parts of the story that um, will, will help you find a larger audience, but also the niche audiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the first thing is really being able, I'd probably create buyer personas for three or four different segments of customers inside the film, because I think it's good to be that specific. Um, And then I'd say, where are those people and what's going to turn them on about the material, right? Because they're, we're all overwhelmed with information, right? There's, there's really, so many things trying to get our information, get our attention. So um, what are the the little gifts and surprises and, and emotional experiences that are the treasure in this film that we can communicate to someone um, in, in marketing the film? So that could, you know, it'll, it'll vary wildly. So then the digital strategy would be, okay, let's find the platforms for our our customer segments. And then that's really brainstorm what's inherent in the movie that people are going to connect with and to start building that out. So what is the text? What are the images? What are the clips? Are there memes, you know, are there memes living inside this film that we can use and to let kind of the film inform us um, about how to find its customers. And I would do a little test marketing because I do think that, you know, doing AB marketing, whether it's with email newsletters, um, I, I do think that you you have to try a few things and see what hits and, and go ahead and be surprised. So that's kind of where um, that would be sort of my basic um, start of the strategy. Fantastic. And for the listeners, I'll, I'll go through that. Number one create buyer personas. Number two, find out what turns them on and and what causes them to listen and stand up straight, so to speak, or sit up straight. And number three, hit your digital platforms and figure out what content within your film can be used on those digital platforms to address those first two items that we listed. Paula, what a fun conversation. I felt like I learned Uh, a ton. Chris, thank, thank you so you. much. Yes, it's, I would love to. I really appreciate your having me, and I'd love to learn more about what you guys are up to. So let's just flip the table if we have a second. What are you? What are you working on right now? And what are you jazzed about? Aside from this great podcast. Wow. Uh, well, we work in three areas. So we work in investment, advisory producing, and thought leadership. And from an investment standpoint, we always take pitches. We're always taking perspectives and lookbooks. And we have several projects we look at uh, and stay looking at. And we're just trying to figure out what's the best and most sort of lucrative place you can place your money. And then the other part of that is trying to figure out how to disrupt the way films get made and financed. So you mentioned earlier uh, this world where every filmmaker can make their film. That's the world we're going to advocate for and have been advocating for and trying to find a way because uh, what happens, and I think this theme has been um, 
there throughout this conversation. But one of the concepts coming out of this conversation is if you're a filmmaker and you don't make your investors back their money on your first film, it's very hard for you to make a second film. So how can we take that pressure away, that stigma away, whether it be through technology or some other avenue where the second film can get made, that third film can get made because most people's first film is something they direct and something they write, which I think is a good idea. Uh, But what does that second film look like? Third film. Can we somehow apply the lessons learned on the first film to the second and third film, which would logically, I know it doesn't always work out that way, but logically make you think that those films would be better. Uh, from an advisory producer standpoint, that's about good taste and good judgment. So we have a couple of projects we're working on now, hopefully a TV series we get to be a part of here in, in Nashville. We have a short film that should be coming out soon called Gateway by the great Matt Williams uh, that we're happy about. Maybe by the time this airs, it will already have been oh. released. And so a couple of things in that realm, we do consults regularly with the filmmaking community. And that, again, is about two things that we believe you can't really teach, which is good taste and good judgment, <laughs> which are so important in this business. And then the third part is thought leadership. And that's what you're doing now and what you're a part of now. The podcast, uh, we have a book forthcoming uh, tentative title, No Mercenaries. And <laughs> uh, we have a couple of different that's book ideas. <laughs> yeah, th- th- thank you so much. Uh, we have over 40, 50 blogs, uh, posts on our, on our site and we do keynote speeches. Last year we did them via zoom. A lot of times you can find us doing those, uh, zoom keynotes, uh, in organizations like women in film from, you know, across the country and the world. And then of course, uh, being on film festival panels and we're usually on about five or six panels, seven panels every single year. So looking oh. forward to the, those panels this year as well. So that I hope was a good synopsis of what we're up to. I don't yeah. think I could get it all in, but I, I tried to squeeze <laughs> it in. <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. And you, you've got these really distinct and such important, you know, categories of work that you're working in and they'll really affect so many other things. So that's interesting as you're successful in those areas. I think that will really cascade, um, into into a lot of other films and a lot of other projects. We sure hope so. And and we hope uh, one of the fun parts of doing this podcast is we meet these incredible, incredibly creative people like yourself. And that always lends itself to being able to work with those people. So our goal is to is to be able to work with you uh, in the future and and. I just think you put a bunch of smart people in a room. Uh, we're not counting ourselves in that, but our guests <laughs> put you our are. guests in a room you together <laughs> and, and and see what they can come up with for the for the sort of collective good of the industry and and then maybe for the individual good of ourselves at the same time. So um, that's that's kind of the idea, and I'm looking forward to it, and I'm totally open to a round two on this as well. Um, can can you tell everybody where they can find you? On social media or on the internet. Yeah, yeah. So paulalandry.com is the easiest way. And my email is paula at paulalandry.com. And on my site, I have a contact form as well. And I've gotten a lot of really fun and kind of random experiences kind of coming from my website. And then I'm on LinkedIn, um, Paula Landry, the number one, um, because I think there's that's a really great place for business-minded and entrepreneur entrepreneurial minded creatives, um, to get out there. 
um, and to start interacting with the people that they they want to be talking with. Um, mm-hmm. And Facebook and Instagram as well. On on Instagram, I'm a flick chick NYC and Facebook my name, but um, LinkedIn is kind of where I'm hanging out. Um, the most lately because I see a lot of interesting discussions about inclusion and diversity and um, sort of the forward looking conversations about um, about the film industry, which I I'm, I'm very excited about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you also do some contributing writing for a script magazine, right? Yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you if uh, you and Nick wanted to have a conversation with me so I could interview you and do an article about you, because I think this is exactly what writers and filmmakers need to be um, thinking about or the kind of things that you're up to. I will talk to Nick about it, but my guess is that we would be absolutely honored. Oh, great. That would be fun. Then we get to talk again. Love that. (laughs) That's right. We just did it. It's a date. (laughs) All right. So so we'll end on this. I uh, have a quote here from Frank Zappa that you posted on Friday the 13th. I never set out to be weird. It was always other people that called me weird. Do you think of yourself as weird? I am so so very weird. I am extravagantly, exuberantly, delightfully weird. And I used to um, really run away from that. Um, but I embrace it now because that's that's where creative spirit really comes from, right? This is this is the area where humans really excel is because we're all different, even though we're very similar. Um, we have this special thing that we can share with people. And it it usually comes through storytelling in one form or another. And um, I enjoy my weirdness now to a capacity I never thought possible. And I, I would encourage everybody to just to find that place in themselves and really celebrate it because it's um, it's what makes us, laugh it's what's unexpected it's where the surprises come it's it's how you you know it's how you share your experience with others um and it actually helps people so um i dig weird people i love them that's why i i love the artist community um because they they're trying to figure it out and 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 celebrate it so yeah i'm super weird <laughs> you are the you are definitely the best kind of weird that i've come across so. You're very kind. <laughs> absolutely have have a wonderful day and this has been so much fun like i said and uh, i wish you luck in everything that you're trying to accomplish and do in 2021 i cannot wait for the new edition of the book to come out and i can't wait to talk to you again so paula thank you so much Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christopher. Take good care, and I look forward to talking again soon. Likewise. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community, on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. And you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.